Well, thank you for the wonderful singing this morning, and uh, thank you, choir. Isn't the choir doing a wonderful job? They are, they are, they work hard at it, and I tell them that because I want them to know that the Lord Jesus is, is honored and glorified uh, as we sing unto Him and as they come together. If you are considering uh, the choir ministry, uh, listen, uh, don't, I hope you don't hesitate. I hope you'll talk to Brother Mike or just show up for choir practice one day. Uh, Brother Mark, uh, excuse me, Mike will get you plugged in. And uh, everyone helps. You know, there are people like me uh, that uh, that I wish I could be in the choir, okay? <laughs> brother, they say, yeah, well, you can be. No, it's probably not a good idea, okay? Uh, but, um, but some of you, God has truly blessed you uh, with beautiful voices. And you may not think that, but God has gifted you with that. And, and can I say, there is no shame in joining with your brothers and sisters in Christ and singing unto the King of Kings. There's no shame in that. And uh, it's, a, it's a blessing. So if you're uh, thinking about that, I hope you will uh, consider joining our choir. And I know that it will be a huge help to our church, a blessing to all of us. But most importantly, it honors the Lord. All right. Well, if you will go ahead and turn in your Bibles uh, to the book of Haggai. The book of Haggai. Now, uh, that is one of those minor prophets that's tucked away. So an easy way to find it is just go to the book of Matthew in your New Testament and go back about four books. Okay? Uh, Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. And then you go back to Zechariah and then you will find Haggai. Alright? So it's there toward the end of the Old Testament. And uh, the Lord impressed upon me to uh, preach a series out of this book. It may just be only a month long, but as I've been studying and praying as to where uh, God would lead us, uh, I just believe providentially in my study, the Lord said, I want you in this book. And so we're, by God's grace, going to be going through it probably the next month. It could go longer. And I felt as I got to study, I'm realizing more and more why the Lord has us here. And I trust that it will help us in our growth in the Lord. But, you know, it's unique how we are coming off a week of revival meetings. And the Lord has spoken and we have responded and many great decisions have been made. And now it is our God-given responsibility to follow through with our decisions. And the Lord is going to help us with that. And we're going to give him all the glory. But let's just read for this morning. I'd like to read verses 1 and 2. Verses 1 and 2. Haggai, or you could say Haggai is also another way of pronouncing it. But Haggai chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, in the first day of the month, came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet unto Zerubbabel, the son of Shelatil, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, This people say, The time is not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Read verse 2 again. Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, This people say, The time is not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Let's pray together. 
Father, I come to you in Jesus' name, knowing that I can do nothing within myself. And I confess my total and complete dependency upon your Spirit right now. And Lord, I'm asking that you would just take the message this morning and use it to exalt the Lord Jesus and to draw us closer to Him. And Lord, I'm praying that you would mold us and make us and help us to learn from this minor prophet from over 2,000 years ago that had a message for a people that desperately needed help. So, Lord, I look to you now and you alone. I pray for the listeners that they would be attentive to your word and would respond with obedience. For I do pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I'd like to preach a message to you this morning entitled, Israel, Israel's Excuse, The Time Has Not Come. Israel's Excuse, The Time Has Not Come. You know, we all can tend to have a habit of making excuses, can we not? We all fall into that category from time to time in our life when something is not taking place as it should be and, or did not take place. Uh, and, and we tend to make excuses. That is the human nature. And it really comes out in certain areas of life. But I, I thought this was uh, very comical and interesting, uh, the way excuses came out in this context. Uh, Philadelphia's highway patrol officers hear all kinds of creative excuses. Excuses that drivers give for speeding. Here are some of the officers' favorites. And by the way, none of them worked. This one was one that the Philadelphia Highway Patrol heard. A man going south on I-95 was stopped near Washington Avenue doing 79 miles per hour. He says, my engine misses and I'm trying to clean out the carburetor, he told the officer. And for good measure, he added, if I don't go this fast, my car won't go at all. Yep. One told an officer, I'm due in traffic court, one speeder said. If I'm late, they're going to enforce the bench warrant. When an officer told a speeder that the speed limit on the uh, Schuylkill Expressway was 50 miles per hour, the driver responded, Officer, where have you been? It's 65 now. Don't try that one. I like this one. One speeder said simply, I'm trying to beat my wife home. Don't ask. An elderly person was stopped after going 73 miles per hour. When told he was getting a ticket, he asked the officer, Is there a senior citizen discount? I like that. You know, we can make excuses, can't we? We're pretty good at coming up with them. In fact, it was the uh, a, a young man at this time, a, a poet, 
who actually made this quote. He said, whoever wants to be a judge of human nature should study people's excuses. That's true. Our excuses reveal our human weaknesses, our human tendencies. You see, we are on the scene of, in this small book tucked away. It is the second smallest book uh, in the Old Testament here, and uh, next to Obadiah. But this little book tucked away is a, is a group of people, just like you and me, who have weaknesses and struggles. But their weaknesses that we're going to see here this morning, one of the major ones was they made excuses. They made excuses for why they were not doing what the Lord had commanded them to do. You see, upon this scene, there was a group of nearly 50,000 Jews that had been released from captivity. And uh, they had been allowed to go back into their land. And they are now giving an excuse in the verses that we just read of why they had yet to build the temple. Because you see here, I'll give the context here in just a minute. That was one of the responsibilities as they were released from their 70 years of captivity under the rule of Nebuchadnezzar. But they were not doing it. Why were they not doing it? Well, this little book is going to help us understand that. And in this book, we're going to find the Lord is going to rebuke, but praise God, revive His people. He's going to rebuke and revive His people to do what? To rebuild the temple. Why? Because that is the place of, of, that was the place of His presence. That was the place that put forth His Shekinah glory. That was the place that He set aside to manifest Himself. And He wanted it back. But there are some things that came up that caused them and hindered them from going forth. How was the Lord going to get their attention? How was He going to go about doing that? Well, as we look at this minor prophet, we're going to see some of the details of how exactly the Lord is going to approach His people. Now, the correlating passages to this book is found in Ezra. And you can read through that as we study through this. We may, we're going to definitely reference it from time to time. But in Ezra chapter 4 through 6 is the correlating passages of what is going on right here in this minor prophet. Let's look first of all at this person of Haggai. Who is Haggai? What does his name mean? It's an interesting name. Has anybody ever here met someone by the name of Haggai? Anybody? Wow. Well... Joanna, maybe we'll have to think about that in the future. We'll be the first. She's like, honey. That's an interesting name. You know what it means? It means, it means simply this, festive one or, or festal one. One who is festive, and it, it, it seems to me indicate that maybe this man was born around the time of a Jewish festival or during the, one of the Jewish feasts that were celebrated. That's very possible, but it's not known for sure. You know, there's not a lot said about Haggai, about his personal life. There's not a lot said about his personal history. But we do know several things that uh, he that did happen in his life, and 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 we know that we know for sure about him is one he was a messenger of the Lord. 
We know that because if you look there in verse 13 of chapter 1, it says there, Then spake Haggai, the Lord's what? The Lord's what? Y'all reading along with me there. The Lord's messenger. In verse 13, he was a messenger of the Lord. And that's what prophets had. You look through the Old Testament and the prophets had a message for the nation of Israel. They had a message for those that God was speaking to. And uh, we do not have that office in the sense of uh, foretelling. These prophets would tell the future, as we're going to see uh, his uh, counterpart or a contemporary of his uh, was Zechariah. Uh, but, they, but they had a, a responsibility of foretelling, but also forthtelling. Now, as we all realized, we, we still most definitely have the office of those that forthtell. Brother Ron Comfort came here, and I, I sense that I feel like it, it, if you had to kind of give a, uh, a comparison, I really feel like the gift of the evangelist is a lot like the prophet of the Old Testament. Uh, he doesn't foretell, but he does come and foretell. And he comes and, and, and speaks the word of God and challenges the people of God to wake up. That was always the message. Turn your hearts and your eyes back to the Lord Almighty and to get their attention and to bring renewal and restoration. That was the message. And that was Haggai's message. Uh, we know that he was a prophet. And what's interesting about this is he uh, was the first post-captivity prophet. In other words, he came back with that first group of three groups that would come back. He came back with that group of less than 50,000. And he would be the first one that would begin uh, preaching as a prophet to the children of Israel back in their homeland of Jerusalem. That was his ministry. And his age is uncertain, although it, it might be uh, indicative there that he was around 70 years old if he saw uh, the Lord's, uh, excuse me, Solomon's temple. He does reference it uh, in, in here in our book. He does reference it, that, that Solomon's temple, uh, the beauty of it and the glory of it. And it's very possible that he did see that. If so, he would be over 70 years old. And it's another thing that's interesting about this book is how it sort of continues our timeline of being in the Bible because we studied Daniel for a year and a half. And Daniel was a prophet, if you will, there in the time of captivity. And he would pass uh, to go to be with the Lord in his 80s. And then, of course, his prayer was always that the, the, the nation of Israel would be freed. And they were. And what we're continuing. When Daniel died... We're going to see the children of Israel go, get out of captivity. They're freed. I'm going to give some dates on that here in just a second. But then there's another prophet that steps on the scene. Aren't you thankful that God's always got someone to speak for him? I believe that it, this is what I believe. My opinion is I believe that if, if we will not speak, please listen up, ladies. If God will not speak, if you will, you will not allow God to speak through you. I do believe He will put us on the shelf of uselessness and speak through someone else. And none of us want to be put on that shelf. We all want to be ready for the Lord to speak through us, but we see His servant truly being yielded to Him. Haggai. That's who it is. Now, when does Haggai arrive? When does he come on scene? Well, thankfully it tells us that it's precisely in verse 1. 
It tells us that in, in verse 1. It says here, it was in the second year of Darius, the king. When? In the sixth month, in the first day of the month. Now, I didn't plan this at all, either, but you know what this timeline is. It's about almost to the day of where we are right now on our calendar. They, of course, uh, uh, lunar calendar is what they would use when the new, moon, the, the new moon was shown and evident. They would uh, know that that was the first day of the month. And it just so happened at this time that it w- did fall around August 29th, sometime in the very beginning of September, is the exact timeline of this passage. I find that very interesting. So that would make it exactly 2,538 years ago to this day. That we see this scene that Haggai is on the scene. So let me just give you a little bit of a historical context. I hope you'll bear with me. Uh, this is a review for many of you. But let me give you the historical context. You'll remember, after the 70 years of captivity, what happened? Cyrus came in, the Medes and Persian. They came over and conquered Babylon. You remember? Babylon fell and, and uh, Cyrus took over. What did he do? One of the first things he did, it was a political move. He said, I'm going to free the Jewish people. I'm going to free them and, and, and allow them to go back to their homeland. And that was 539 B.C. Well, following that in 538, just a year following, the first group of Jews numbering less than 50,000 returned to their land after being gone 70 years. So many of the, of the parents and grandparents had gone, had passed on. And it was a, there was a generation of young people that were going back to their homeland. That was in 538. Who, was, who led this, 50, this group of 50,000? We see in our passage who it was. It was Zerubbabel. Now try saying that like, you know, 15 times really fast and that can be a little difficult. But we see here that it was led by Zerubbabel and, and, and Joshua. Now, Zerubbabel was more of a civil leader. He was more like a governor or a mayor that he would take these group of people and, and have the civil aspect of it, of the laws that would take place. But then you notice Joshua. Joshua was the other man that went with this group. He was the co-leader. Uh, you know, he was the one that came alongside. Now, he was the spiritual guide. He was the priest. He would uh, encourage the group spiritually and be the leaders. And that's who we see here leading this group. You know what they, you know what they find when they return to Jerusalem? Rubbish. Ruins. Hardly anything. Devastation. Leftovers from Nebuchadnezzar, that wicked Babylonian king. And when he destroyed it, he truly did destroy it, just like God said he would. And I'm telling you, when they arrive, there's really not a lot of hope there with the eyes. But you know this group showed up with full of hope. This group showed up with vision. You can go back to Psalm 126 and, and read about that, how they were filled uh, with vision, with hope and dreams, going back to their homeland. They had been in captivity all those years. And now... We get to go home. We get to return to where we came from. There was excitement as they returned. And you'll read in Ezra chapter 3 and 4, as soon as they get back, almost almost as soon as they get back, of course, they reinstitute the feast. And they also start laying the foundation of the new temple. Now, notice what I said. They start. 
they begin to lay the foundation. There's revival taking place. You can go back and see that very clearly. In Ezra chapter 3, they were singing, they were shouting. Now, we know some of the younger generation was shouting with great joy. Some of the older generation was shouting with what appears grieving because of the comparison to the temple of Solomon. But nevertheless, they were all shouting. Nevertheless, there was an excitement. And nevertheless, they were looking forward to the temple being rebuilt. There's excitement. But in 530 B.C., something happens. They're they're on a roll. They're starting to rebuild. And then the work comes to a halting stop. It just comes to a complete stop. What causes that? There's a group of people called the Samaritans. They were a leftover group of people that were colonized there by the Assyrians. And they uh, they were still there in that area of the world. And they began to oppose the work of the Jewish people. And you'll read that in Ezra too, that they just set out to go against the, the nation of Israel. And the idea of them rebuilding there and settling, listen, they did not want it. But listen, this is what really got them, and this is a whole different message. But you know what really ticked those Samaritans off? Is when Zerubbabel and Joshua declined their help in rebuilding Jerusalem. They, they came and said, listen, we would love to help you rebuild. We're here in the land already. But there was a big problem with that. One of the major problems is, is they were pagans. They had, they had traditional Jewish worship with some other things that were all mixed together. And it, was blas- it, was, it could literally be blasphemous towards the Almighty God. And so Zerubbabel and Joshua said, we're not going to mix. That's wrong. They resented it, and from that point forward, they set out to go against the work of God. They were the enemies. And then Artaxerxes, he was contacted, and he got involved. The king of Persia at the time, and he sets out and opposes the work. So it starts to see that the enemy is is strongly going against the work of God. Hey, you know what, church? That hadn't changed, has it? It hadn't changed one bit. Do you ever sense that you feel like something's going against you? Do you ever sense like when you're trying to do right, you feel like you're getting some opposition? Does anybody else feel that way? Listen, anytime you are going forward for God, you are going in in a path of resistance. You are going into a path where you will be opposed to your face by the enemy. And he does not want us walking with God. He doesn't want the church walking with God. And neither did he want the children of Israel rebuilding the temple. Because, by the way, this is another message, but they, he knew, they knew that when the children of Israel did what they were supposed to do, and that temple was to be built and the glory of God would be shown forth, they knew they had no power against that. And can I say this? Satan has no power against the power of God. When God's children are walking in the Spirit, we shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. When I submit myself, therefore, unto God and resist the devil, the Bible gives me a glorious promise that that rascal, that accuser, that liar and murderer will be required by the mouth of God to flee. Is that a glorious truth or not, church? God says he has to flee. He's bound by the word of God that if I resist him, he will flee. Well, this crowd here did not want to resist. 
This crowd in this scene here and in this historical account of the nation of Israel as they came back from captivity did not want to fight against the enemy. And we see here that, uh, that it brings us uh, to what, what started taking place. What started taking place in their lives when they started realizing the opposition was coming? What happened? Well, lethargy, materialism, and indifference set in. We'll see here as we study this book that this crowd had the same tendencies as we do today. They, get, they got tired in the fight. They got weary. So we've been doing these things. We came back from captivity. We started working. Lord, we started doing what you told us to do. And it just seemed like every direction we turn, somebody's opposing us. We got the Samaritans that are all upset at us because we didn't let them join in. We, 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 we practice separation, which, by the way, is still a doctrine today. Didn't get an amen right there, did I? So we see that it is a doctrine separation, and they they decided to separate. So then they got them opposed to them. Then they got the political opposition, and it was a bad situation. They were they were facing a lot of opposition. Not to mention all the work that had to be done. A lot of work. So we see here that there is uh, there's a, a desperate situation here. They pretty much just said, "Okay, well, opposition's here. Nothing for us to do." But then, thank God, help shows up. Fifteen years. Fifteen years, ladies and gentlemen, the work lied dormant. Nothing was being done. They had given up. But God in His mercy said, Children, I love you enough to not let you get away with this. I'm sending help your way. And oh, praise God, He sent help through a fire-breathing prophet of God. Amen? He sent the preacher. By the way, I don't know about you, but I am so glad what God did in our hearts this past week in the revival meetings. Brother Comfort got up here and just poured his heart out, poured the Word of God out. He confronted us. He wasn't trying to candy coat anything, and I'm glad he didn't. And church, I want to tell you, God still uses preaching. Strong preaching. Confrontational preaching. Not just little lectures. Let's stick our pinkies out and have a cup of tea. No, I'm telling you, there might be a time for that. But I want to tell you, listen, that does not remove the office of the Word of God and the responsibility of the Word of God going forth with power. Confrontational. And we're going to see this minor prophet right here. We may not know much about him, but one thing we do know about him, he came in with some serious confrontation. He said, I got a word for y'all. It's not my word. It's not my word at all, but I'm on the scene, 520 B.C., 15 years out of being dormant. And my, and my partner here, Zechariah, he'll be following in about two months. He's going to preach for four years. But I want to tell you, I got a word from the Lord. And that's the scene we have. And guess what the scene is? God brings it together providentially. It's the new moon. What happens on the new moon, the first day of the month? The Jews are meeting together for a feast. They're meeting together for a time of worship. So Haggai has the whole group right there with him. Haggai steps up. I don't know if he was introduced by Zerubbabel. He might have stood up without even Zerubbabel knowing about it. Because if you notice, the first address is to those two fellas. By the way, 
Listen, take a note of this, leaders. God's always going to deal with us first. Because we are responsible for being the right kind of leaders. So Haggai stands up in this group. Whether he was introduced or not, the Bible does not say. But he starts saying, hey, I got a word for you. Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, he says. And it says that right here, that the Haggai the prophet unto Zerubbabel and the governor, the governor and Joshua to the high priest saying, look, I got a word for you. The word is this. He's got a message to the leaders. The word is this. Get up. That is the theme of this message. It is to rise up. The message of this book is to rise up and build. You have laid too long. You have laid in a discouraging state, an indifferent state. And God is saying, listen, children, you got to wake up. You might be feeling like you're living a defeated life, and I'm sure they felt like they were living a defeated life. Maybe there's some out here under the sound of my voice, and you literally feel you are living a defeated life. Well, I have a message for you, the same message that Haggai had for this group over 2,000 years ago. Hey, rise up. Rise up and build. That is going to be the message here, and there are no excuses heard the illustration of Kitty, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing this correctly, but Genovese. Kitty Genovese was the young woman who was murdered in a New York residential section while at least 38 neighbors watched from their windows. During the course of the 30-minute assault, no one even telephoned the police. Studies have uncovered some surprising facts about these people. Interviews revealed that they were not totally indifferent as many had suspected. The main reason nobody did anything was that each person thought someone else would take the initiative and get help. Hey, we can't stand around and wait for somebody else to do it. God's calling us to do it. I'm speaking to some teenagers here this morning, some college kids, that you're just going to have to say, no, I'm not going to wait around for so-and-so to take a lead in this. I'm going to take the lead. I'm not going to be indifferent. I'm just going to take the lead and be the spiritual person God wants me to be. Parents, we're in the same category. We can't wait till mom to do it. We can't wait till dad to do it. We just have to walk with Christ no matter who's doing it. Amen? That is God's given responsibility to leaders. It is to walk by example. The Lord will bless that. And that's what He's going to tell these leaders. And then He goes on to say this. He's going to teach them that God's people had lost their vision, their responsibility, and their purpose. I'll tell you something that I've been renewed in. You'll probably hear it come through my teaching and preaching, and that's just the way it is. I guess I guess just the way it is. If I'm going to be a leader here, I have to just, you're going to see my heart. But one thing, and and what I mean by my heart is usually things you get is where God has dealt with me first and rebuked me and just taught me some things. And then I just make sure I got it right in my heart and mind. And then a lot of times I just convey it, try to convey it to you. And one of the things that God has been working me over with is the fact of, uh, do do I really have a mission in life? Do I have a mission does our church have a mission? Are we going towards something? Do we know where we're going? <clears throat> and this group, church, had lost that. 
You know what they had turned their attention to? We'll see it in the coming Sundays. They had turned their attention to themselves. To their prophet. And they just got away from the Lord. But thank God, in His mercy, He sent this prophet to remind them that they had a job to do. You know, there was a, there was a people here that were making excuse. He was sent to the leaders, but He was also sent to the people that had lost their vision. Do you know a people who chose the route of excuse making? You've been there, I've been there. God deals with us about something and we make excuse why we can't do it or why we haven't done it. And I'm telling you what, we made some decisions this past week and there will be decisions made even here this morning. We have got to not make excuses and wait for that perfect opportunity and simply say, the time is not come. Listen, can I say this? It is always time to do the will of God. Always. It is always time to obey the Word of God. There's no, God gives us no right to say, well, one of these days I will fulfill that command when I'm spiritual enough. Now listen, God's saying it is time. Just as it was time to build the temple. The time has not come that you see here is a lie. They deceived themselves. You know what they were saying? They were using prophecy. They knew that God had said He would rebuild the temple. But this is, look, this is where they got messed up. And this is where we get messed up. They got to the point where they took away human responsibility. You know, well, I guess it just wasn't meant to be. Or, well, God's ready for me to do that. Or give me victory in that. It'll happen. It is what it is. And there's that sort of complacency attitude that I think has started taking place. Well, God says He'll rebuild the temple. It'll be rebuilt. And you know what? It it just bred, bred indifference in their hearts. And they got away from the mission of rebuilding that temple. And God said, no, I gotta, I'm going to wake you all up because this has got to happen. You're going to do this and I'm going to use you. I am not going to allow you to take away your human responsibility of saying, rise up and do something. Put on the armor of light. That means we do something. Brother Christian and I have been meditating in our prayer meetings on Wednesday night about the need of, of, uh, of, of waking up. And God has even been using this message to help me with that. Just getting out of the bed. I'm not talking about physically each morning. That we, you know, most of us can struggle with that too, with that flesh. But speaking spiritually, let's get out from under the covers. You know, it'll be getting cold here soon. And sometimes, especially those of us don't don't run the heat real high, save on the power bill. Every time I go to Minnesota, I like to freeze to death. They run the heat a little bit. But you know, sometimes we just need to throw back those covers and get out of the bed spiritually. We've been all snuggled up. We've gotten comfortable. And that's what happened here. They just got comfortable with not doing what God had asked them to do. And he said, move. You know, I like what George Washington said. He said, it is better to offer no excuse than a bad one. Proverbs 26:13 The slothful man saith there is a lion in the way a lion is in the streets 
Proverbs 20, verse 4, The sluggard will not plow by, excuse me, plow by reason of the cold. Therefore shall he beg and harvest and have nothing. See, it is the character of a sluggard, spiritually and physically, to make excuses to why they can't do something when God is saying, do it. One author said, I don't know who it was, anonymous here, when there is a hill to climb, don't think that waiting will make it smaller. Benjamin Franklin said this, He that is good for making excuses is seldom good for anything else. Lawyer and statesman Daniel Webster was a powerful orator who gave early evidence of his quick mind and way with words. One day, Webster's father, who was to be absent from home, left Daniel and his brother Ezekiel specific work instructions. But on his return, he found the task still undone and questions, questions his sons about their indifference. What have you been doing, Ezekiel? He asked, nothing, sir. Well, Daniel, what have you been doing? Helping Zeke, sir. (laughs) Well, he was honest, wasn't he? He was honest about his idleness. And you know one thing we need to be honest about this morning, church? I don't know what the Holy Spirit is pointing out in your life and in my life. But the truth is, most likely there is some idleness in your life where you are refusing to confront and just do it. And God's saying, just do it. And you're making excuses. We make excuses. God has identified it. And we just need to do it. So, in closing, what is the message? You know what he says here? In your, look in your Bibles. In verse number 1. Look there. He says, verse 2, Thus speaketh what? The Lord of... We're going to find that term used 14 times in Scripture. 14 times in this, in this book. This little book. Lord of hosts. What does that mean? Lord of armies. Lord of armies. I don't know about you, but that is wonderfully exciting to me. Do you know what I believe that pictures? He's telling a people that have gotten discouraged and defeated and gotten way off track, and he tells them this. I am speaking for the Lord of all the powerful armies in the world. The angelic host, the almighty God, he is for you. He is for you and this thing of rebuilding the temple. And church, I hope that whatever God has brought to your mind that you've been putting off and putting off and putting off, know that the Lord of hosts is behind you. He's not only behind you, but He's in front of you. He's not only in front of you, but He's on each side of you. And the Lord God Almighty will give you the grace to do it, but we must just get up and do it. Stop making excuses. And another thing He's going to deal with here in His message about getting your priorities in order. And then he's going to say, get up and rebuild the temple. Oh, I don't know what God is doing here and is going to do through this little book, but I know he's doing something special in my heart. He's reminding me of some areas as your pastor that I need to get up and build. Get up and do what God's told me to do. There's a story in the L.A. Times a long time ago. A guy goes to the house where he grew up and knocks on the door. Because he hadn't been there for 20 years, he finds himself getting sentimental. He asks the owners if he can walk through the house, and they let him. While in the attic, yep, he went to the attic. 
he finds an old jacket of his. He puts it on, reaches into the pocket and pulls out a stub. It's a receipt from an old shoe repair shop. He realizes he had taken a pair of shoes there 20 years ago. And in the midst of the move, he had never picked them up. I probably got some stuff at dry cleaner somewhere. I don't even know. But he just occurred to him, here's this ticket. 20 years ago, I didn't pick them up. So on a whim, he decides to go to this repair shop. Just to be funny, he takes the receipt out and hands it to the guy behind the desk saying, Are my shoes ready? The guy goes back to the workroom for a minute, comes back to the counter and says, come back next Thursday and they'll be ready. You know, a lot of times if we're not careful, we'll do that. When God deals with us about something and he's leading us to something, we'll say, Lord, come back next Thursday on that one. We're not ready for that. But God says... It's time. Today. It's time. Let's pray.